Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with two folks we know from right here where we live in Rochester, New York, who are doing amazing work that is reaching people worldwide to help them put more plants in their diet. Yeah. What's so cool about Ted and Carol is that they are in the medical field. Ted is an MD. And they are all about the animals. And honestly, that's just so refreshing because probably a lot of other people are too who work in the medical field, but Ted talks about it. And I love that. That is really, they have been doing incredible work for literally decades. Yeah, that's right. uh, It's very exciting. And the work they're doing is great. And I'm afraid to say anything because you made fun of the way I started. So now I'm afraid to, to... I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce all the words. So, so I, you, you just continue. I did an improv class yesterday and we had to do a scene in gibberish. And that was kind of like what it was reminding me of. Oh, a that's little. really nice. It's <laughs> really nice. Where's the We're rest- doing this late in the day, really late in the day because Jasmine was too busy to do it earlier. I'm tired. And this is what I get. Gibberish. Well, okay. Not gibberish, but... Anyway, there is one thing that I would say is gibberish, which is why is the media so completely obsessed with this complete bullshit Kentucky Derby nonsense? I'm so over it. Like I was I was over it before it started, but honestly, I'm sickened by this. It's just like humans at their worst. Well, I mean, the the fact that all of these horses died, seven horses died in the in the lead up to the race is getting a lot of press. I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but there's no way it's getting enough press or that the press is angry enough or noticing enough what happens to these horses. It's really frustrating. I did find one article. It's on an, a site called Deadspin and it's a sports site. So I'm not familiar with it because I don't really follow sports, but apparently it takes kind of a you know, a, a different point of view of a lot of things. And this is the article, quick, what hat says I'm fun, but also grieving seven dead horses, which apparently the Kentucky Derby, this may be something that a lot of people already know. People wear weird hats and, you know, apparently they think they look like Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady and they, they don't. They, they, really they really don't. don't. No, nope. not that, you know, that was a good thing in My Fair Lady, but, but at least she looked really good. Even the New York Times did an article reporting on it as if it was fashion. Uh, it, the whole thing is ridiculous. They And they hardly, hardly, they just did a link to say that there was a controversy referring to the fact that seven horses died. So the Deadspin article is a good take on it. And they don't like the horse racing in general. They're really telling the story of what happened. Apparently, there were five dead horses entering Saturday, which rose to seven after a couple of three-year-old horses were injured and then had to be euthanized. Of course, that's always the way it's put. Did they really have to be euthanized? Could they have spent a lot of money to help them heal? I don't know. Well, one of the problems is that thoroughbreds are bred to be so so delicate. So their bones are thin, so they're not that heavy, so that they can run faster. I don't know how it all works, but it's just horrible. Mm. And yeah, I don't know how people out there, I, I'm wondering like how how your friends and family reacted because it's one of those stories, you know, every year, like I hear of people I know and they go to some party for the Kentucky Derby. And, you know, I always say my, my standard, you know, I don't, I really don't like it. And it's, and they look at me like I'm annoying because that's what they think. And, and I'm just wondering this year, did it rise to people's consciousness that this is abusive, that this isn't an accident that these horses die? They're, they're, 
it's abusive. It's an abusive process. The horses are bred to be too fragile. They're worked too hard. And people just like it because it has funny hats and they get to drink a lot while they're watching it. Anyway, I'm going to shut up because I'm just going on and on and on because I hate the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. I, You know, it's so funny. I took an improv class yesterday. We had to talk about something we were passionate about. And I don't feel like explaining all of the rules of the improv, but that was basically the gist of it. And there were like 10 of us on stage and the teacher points to one person and she starts talking about how she's tired of people asking her what she eats as a vegetarian. And I was like, that's interesting. Then the guy right before me goes, I'm vegan and I really am sick of people judging me for it in a bad way. I don't, I don't like, and I was going to be talking about the baby on board sticker on people's car and how much I hate the baby on boards. Like, oh, okay, Let's not hit that car because it has baby on board on it. Otherwise, go right. Ahead. Otherwise, just hit it. I was just all set to talk about that. But when the guy next to me started talking about how he's vegan and he hates the way he's maligned for it, when the teacher pointed to me, I was like, I'm vegan for nearly 20 years and I love it. And I went on and on about it. And it was like a comical moment to sort of like jump off of what he was saying. But I loved that there was like veganism in the zeitgeist in that way. In any way, the reason I was bringing that up in this context was because I do think that more and more people are starting to notice when things are animal cruelty. I do. I genuinely do. Yeah, I do too. And the fact that there was so much press about these horses dying to me is a positive a positive, like, hand, spin. Like, yeah. I don't think there's ever been a Kentucky Derby before where seven horses died. Right. I mean, it was pretty unbelievable. It would have been crazy if they hadn't covered it. Yeah. But at the same time, I agree with you. It's becoming more legit. It, including in universities, which is something else we wanted to chat about. I'm really excited about this story. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with animal cruelty. So uh, I'm not sure it has. I sure really, it does. I, I differ in your in that well, opinion. This is this story in The Lancet, which you might have seen. The Lancet, of course, is this extremely prestigious medical journal. I think it's from the UK. It's an article that is entitled Universities Should Lead on the Plant-Based Dietary Transition. It's mostly focusing on climate. It is weird that it's a medical journal and it's mostly focusing on climate, but but it is making the point. And I really hope that this starts to catch on because I do see it happening. And I see this being very legitimate, that this is a place where real change can be made. Uh, university cafeterias and, you know, they have so many eating outlets in universities that that they could make enormous change if there starts to be a real push to have more plant-based eating there. And, you know, what kids do when they're in college can affect what they do, you know, for their whole lives. Another point the article makes is that when kids go to college, because it's such a huge change in their life, they are actually more open to making other changes. And so it's a really good time to have an effect. So this is a huge opportunity. Anybody who who works or uh, studies at a university should be thinking about, you know, how to make the most of this. There are certainly some universities that are already doing it. They would suggest that the first step should be to ensure that at least one affordable, satisfying, and healthy plant-based option is available every day. But, you know, obviously that's minimum. There should be actually a wide variety. A second step would be to provide students and staff with the information. Uh, so, you know, they have more food literacy and 
kids are so open to climate messages these days because they're terrified, as they well should be. And the third step is that leaders at universities could actively encourage dietary shifts through soft measures, such as reducing the animal-based component in a given dish or small price incentives. You know, these little changes can make a big difference. And all of a sudden, if people are eating fewer animals because it costs a little bit less to to get the vegan option, or just because there's, you know, a smaller burger on the plate, it, it starts changing people's behavior. So there's so many options. There's so many ways that this could happen. And I love that this is kind of becoming a thing. What did you eat in college? I don't know. Whatever they gave me, I think. I ate a lot. Do you think you would? I was hungry all the time. (laughs) If you were in college and you just said, I I ate what they gave me, if they gave you. Oh, yeah. 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 So you kind of do. Well, you know, you had choices, but they weren't extensive. Well, when I was in college, it it was like a city campus. So there was no campus. It was just I'm talking about my first college, which was in Philadelphia at the University of the Arts. And that was when I went vegetarian. And so all I ate was the pizza that was below my apartment. Like literally, that's what I ate 100% of the time. Well, you know, that's probably, I would enjoy pizza. Well, I'm wondering now. I bet they have vegan pizza there now. Yeah. And so I like to believe I would have eaten the vegan pizza because I went vegetarian for like years before I went vegan like so many of us. But it's just such a, an impressionable time. I mean, the point of the article isn't so much that they are leading. It's that a few are... And the rest of them really need to step up because it's a huge opportunity, mm-hmm. huge opportunity. Yeah. Well, there are huge opportunities happening around here because of our guests today. And so I think we should get to that because I'm excited to share this with you. This is a different sort of interview for us. We don't frequently focus on people working in the medical industry every now and then, but the fact oh, that but, Ted yeah, and Carol, they're, yeah. they're, they're in it for the reasons we're in it. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I would wish we could focus more on people who were promoting plant-based diets, not just for human health, but also for the safety of the animals. Right. Dr. Ted Barnett is known as the high-tech doctor with low-tech solutions, and he is the founding president and board chair of Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute. Ted is board certified in diagnostic imaging and vascular and interventional radiology, but also in lifestyle medicine, and is the lead lecturer for Jumpstarting Health, which is a continuing medical education, lifestyle medicine, and plant-based nutrition course. Carol Barnett, who has two graduate degrees from Yale, is the content expert and curriculum developer for the Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute. In 2012, she and Ted started teaching a plant-based diet, Eating for Happiness and Health, a six-session course for both the general public and clinicians who receive professional credit. Since COVID, the Institute has grown its reach well beyond Western New York through delivering its programs online, including its 15-day whole food plant-based jumpstart. Carol also runs the Rochester Area Vegan Society and has rescued or helped to rescue scores of cats. Actually, before we get to this, I have one thing to add about the conversation. It's a bit of a trigger warning for people. They did bring up weight a couple times in the scope of the conversation. So that is part of the discussion. And so just be aware that if that's not anything you want to hear, skip to another episode. We have hundreds and hundreds for you to choose from. Carol and Ted will be joining us right after this. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our henhouse, Carol and Ted. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Ted, should I call you Dr. Barnett or Ted or Dr. Ted, or should I alternate? <laughs> you can call me Dr. Veggie. That's what a lot of people call me. Really? They call you yeah. Dr. Veggie? Yeah, but you can call me Ted. It doesn't matter. I love it. I yeah. like Dr. Veggie. Sure, personally. that's my life. My license plate is Dr. Veggie. Oh, really? Interesting. Thanks. I'm so happy you're both here. You are many, many things. A power couple is just one of them. So I have so many questions for you. I'd love to start with just what is Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute? All right. So Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute is an organization that we founded back in 2015 so that we could teach plant-based nutrition to the Rochester area. And since then, it has grown to the point where we're now teaching plant-based nutrition to the world. Uh, We've had people from 44 states take our programs. We've had people from a number of different countries, including England, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, Greece, Mexico. Wow, that's amazing. You know, we teach plant-based nutrition, but we're also doing medical research and we're trying to march into the belly of the beast because we think that plant-based nutrition is, well, not only the best for the animals on the planet, but also the best for human health. But for whatever reason, the healthcare system has not adopted that yet. Not not yet, but the mm-hmm. night's still young, maybe mm-hmm. after after we hear this interview. So when you say the belly of the beast, what is that? What is the beast? Well, the beast is the healthcare system, and what a mess it is. Uh, raise your hand if you think we have a great healthcare system. You don't get a lot of people in the room who raise their hand when we ask that question. Yeah. We spend twice as much on healthcare as any other country, and we don't have the best outcomes. We don't have the best life expectancy, and we don't certainly don't have the best satisfaction. We have a lot of people suffering from chronic disease. Mm-hmm. So how did things change for the Institute during the pandemic for you? It sounds like it might have actually opened up some things for you. Well, I think it was the classic, you know, cloud with a silver lining. You know, everybody was kind of blindsided by COVID. But after just a moment, we realized we had to pivot somehow. I think we had just finished a jumpstart and we were kind of caught in the headlights. And, and then we thought, well, we really should try to do this online. And we had spent the previous year or so trying to figure out how we were going to scale the jumpstart, how we were going to take it to larger and larger numbers of people. And we were at that point thinking about interviewing medical practices and vetting them to see if they could run jumpstart, if they could be our partners, if we could license jumpstart to them. And it all seemed pretty daunting Mm -hmm. and very labor intensive. And and we weren't quite sure how to proceed. And then we realized that if we went on Zoom and gave jumpstart, scaling was still necessary, but it was a very different thing and more more easy to imagine. Mm -hmm. And um, we started from there. I think we might have missed one month and then went into jumpstart on a monthly basis again in April of 2020. And even mm-hmm. we've even doubled up uh, a few months. So we, mm-hmm. I think we, we had our 50th jumpstart last fall. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We run it every, we run it every month. 
and we get, you know, somewhere between 40 and 60 people who sign up. So we've reached 1,700 people who've actually gone through the 15-day whole food plant-based Jumpstart. So I was just going to ask, what is it? Tell us about, because it does seem like it's the heart and soul of the Institute. So what ha- what is the Jumpstart program? Well, we have a big heart and big soul, but that's kind of the, what we focus. That's how we try to bring people on board mm-hmm. uh, is through the 15-day Jumpstart. And basically, usually the first weekend of every month, we take a new cohort through this 15-day odyssey. I like to think of it as some kind of a nature tour where you're getting on a, a ship with a bunch of other people. And we basically ask people to make a big change all at once. You know, there's different approaches to helping people change their their diet. One is this slow incremental one, which I think is torture. And you lose people because they don't see the benefit right away. Whereas mm-hmm. when you have people jump in, feed first, just do the whole thing. Not only do they adapt surprisingly quickly, but they also see the benefits very quickly in a way that's very self-reinforcing. So we get labs drawn just before they start and labs drawn right after they're done. And so they can see, oh my goodness, I didn't have any idea that my cholesterol could actually drop 100 points in two weeks, but it did. Wow. Right? Our record cholesterol drop is over 200 points. Wow. Uh, I can still remember this one woman whose total cholesterol was 299. And on day 15, it was 149. It dropped 150 points. You know, we're, we're all in shock when this happens, but we're not surprised anymore. But other things happen. Blood sugar gets under control. So all these things happen and people feel better. Honestly, that's the big thing. Like we have people who come because they want to get their blood sugar under control or their cholesterol under control. And they tell us on day five, gee, my joints aren't bothering me. I didn't even know my joints were hurting, but I'm jumping out of bed in the morning now. So you get this very rapid positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. I mean, you're probably bringing in people who are used to the standard American diet. And Mm -hmm. is that right? Or do you feel like you're bringing in people who've been sort of tinkering with plant-based eating, and then they're like, oh, there's this program, and I'm going to try. Who is your clientele? Well, that's an interesting question. We get both. Yeah, right, we get both. What did we just discover that uh, women in the their 50s, 60s, and 70s are our biggest demographic? So I think it's about 60 to 40, something like that, women to men. There are a few people who have been vegan but haven't, you know, have figured that that was that was enough to be vegan and they didn't have to really pay attention to anything else, any other choices within being vegan. And, you know, some of them had health scares. But I, I think most people, most people are eating the standard American diet or they've tried plant-based and they just haven't managed to do that. You know, they've dabbled and, and they want the community. So often they say to us that they, they really want to get together with other people and, mm. and resonate with other people in a community. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's especially during really COVID. what we have to offer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people were just so, so thirsty for that. And I feel like COVID sort of broke open this thing that we all needed anyway. It just gave us an excuse to say, we need community. We can't do this without community. Mm-hmm. I went vegan 19 years ago. And mm-hmm. I think about those days and I was like thrust into a community immediately. I was living in New York City. There were all of these people who were just like ready to show me everything. And I know like my my wife went vegan 30 years ago and she was living on her own in San Francisco with like reconstituting soy milk powder and TVP, mm-hmm. you know, with no community. And I, I think some people can succeed without it. Some people need it. I needed mm-hmm. it. What mm-hmm. do you think? Like what role does community play? Well, you know, I, in anticipating this interview, I was thinking, well, what took 
me so long because I was kind of on the fringes for really almost decades before Ted and I decided to become vegan. So that would have been in the late 70s and 80s. And I think it's that if you had the idea presented to you, there was very little else. There weren't any cookbooks. There weren't any role models or societies, not many resources. There wasn't the internet. So there was really nothing to grab hold of. So I can think of yeah. incidents, episodes where the idea was floated, and but there was nothing else there to grab onto. And so it was uh, the water on the stone, you know, that, that those episodes had their effect and they built up. But, but I like to think that, that people who get introduced to the idea of veganism today at least have the opportunity to actually go to the change much more quickly because there's so much yeah. more at their disposal, you know, so much more available, I hope. Yeah. I think so, for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, what do you think about the the documentaries alone? I, I'm just curious about your opinion, just given, like, What the Health and The Game Changers and Forks Over Knives and all of that. Tell me your thoughts on how documentaries have changed the the world for vegans and vegan-to-bees. Wow, well, we've seen a lot of those documentaries come, come along, so I think they're huge now. We recommend them all the time, but... So I guess the first big documentary was what Forks Over Knives, Carol. Or oh, what, what about and then Conspiracy? A Peaceable uh, Kingdom came before that. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember seeing a, a rough cut of Peaceable Kingdom. Was that in maybe two thousand? It was two thousand four. Well, 2000... I think it came out in two thousand four because that's how that's when I went vegan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember yeah. sitting and watching that and thinking, "I'm gonna have a heart attack watching this." <laughs> It was so, you know, it was so awful to see those things and yet so important mm -hmm. to see them and bear witness to them. And and it's interesting that at least before, in those early days, there were a few vegetarian, at least vegetarian cookbooks and, and even a few vegan cookbooks. But I don't think there were any films like that until no. maybe mm -hmm. even after we, we yeah. made the decision to be vegan. Uh, yeah. I remember seeing a witness at Farm mm -hmm. Sanctuary when it was first brought out. And, oh, well, Oof. you just can't, the impact mm -hmm. of those films is so huge. It really? And they're is. hard to watch, but if you want other people to watch them, you have to be willing to watch them together with them, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. And I just, I, I remember when I was in Europe, like in 2019, right before the pandemic, the end of 2019, I was in Wales specifically. I was waiting online to get a ticket for the, you know, their subway. And there were these guys behind me talking about game changers. And I was like, and I turned around like the freaky American, like, hi, I'm sorry. I was just listening to you. And I just, and they were like, okay, all right, chill out, yo, you American. Uh, but I was so excited because it was like, I was like, how has veganism become this? So, all right, getting back to your program, mm. you recommend a telehealth visit prior to starting the Jumpstart program with plant-based telehealth. So tell me mm -hmm. what that entails and like what are the costs for both the sure. telehealth visit and the program itself? Sure. So, so we actually, we recommend a, a visit with a provider before you start. If you don't happen to have a, a local doctor who is sympathetic to what you're trying to accomplish, then we do recommend plant-based telehealth and they're a great organization. You know, one of the founding members was Dr. Michael Clapper, who's, you know, been vegan since, you know, I consider him to be the Moses of the vegan movement. But we recommend that you see your doctor before, for one thing, because you want to get your labs drawn, because you want to have a baseline. Uh, and then you go through the 15-day jumpstart, and then you see your provider again, and that may be 
plant-based telehealth or maybe your own local physician. Either way, it's fine. It's great, though, if you're in a place where you don't have a doctor who's sympathetic, then you can go with plant-based telehealth. Uh, not covered by insurance right now. If you do with a package with us, it's about five or six hundred dollars, right? Because we don't, we're, you know, we charge, well, we charge two ninety nine. But if your doctor refers you, then you get a hundred dollars off. There's several hundred doctors now around the country who regularly refer us patients, and if the patient ha- has a referral, then they get a hundred dollars off. I think it's important to emphasize that people don't have to see a doctor before and after, and they don't That's have to point. get tested. We like them to do that because it is conducive to everybody's health to have, you know, especially people who are on medications, sometimes their medications need adjustment, even for reasons of safety and certainly, you know, for reasons of effectiveness of the meds, if they're, you know, need for insulin drops or their need for blood pressure meds drops. We want people to go vegan. And sometimes right. people, they don't have a doctor or they don't have a great relationship with their doctor. They don't, they don't need to do that. They can self-prescribe them, by yeah. which I just mean they can mm-hmm. sign up and go. We like to get results because then we get, we're able to publish our studies and then we're able to get more credibility and more doctors referring and, you know, mm-hmm. more good reputation and more jump starts. But the goal is more jump starts. So for the individual person who's thinking of doing it, they can just take it. And, and right, we just want as right. many people to take it for any, all reasons to take Jumpstart are good reasons, just like all reasons to be vegan are good reasons. Mm-hmm. That's, such yeah, a, that's can, so well said. Go ahead, yeah. Dr. Veggie. <laughs> sure, sure. So people can just go to our website and just sign up on their own. If you just Google Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute, you'll find it in an instant. But Carol's right. You don't have to see your doctor. Um, but she also pointed out that we really think it's important to publish. And you remember early on, I said we are trying to march into the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. So one of the arguments that we always get is, well, where are the studies that prove that what you're doing is right? There are plenty of studies actually out there that people just choose to ignore, to be perfectly honest. But we've published at least three times about the jumpstart itself. And the organization itself, likes to, we pub- we've published a few more articles beyond the ones that were just about jumpstart. So we consider our, ourselves to be you know, academic in that sense. So we have Dr. Susan Friedman, who's a professor at the University of Rochester, professor of medicine, and she loves to publish. She was the, the lead author on... Um, there was a white paper produced about healthy aging mm-hmm. from the American Geriatric Society, AGS, and she was the lead author on that. And so she's just constantly looking for different ways that we can publish, and it's great. And that's an, one of the reasons we really like to get numbers from people, because everybody gets entered into our HIPAA-compliant database so that we can then go back and examine our, our data. Oh, one thing that's kind of cool is, you know, we went two years before the pandemic, right? And we had about 400 people do the jump start then. And um, our initial data were published on those 400 people. Well, then we we pivoted and went to a virtual and you know on Zoom and it's seven Zoom visits. It's 11 hours together as a group, plus all this time on the Google Classroom. And we analyzed our results again a few months ago, and the results after pandemic are exactly the same. Huh? I mean, a tiny bit better actually, but basically the same. Wow. Yeah, That's it was kind of yeah, amazing. We loved it. Yeah. So. So how do you encourage people to stick with it for the long haul? And I'm asking this on behalf of all of my listeners. I'm sure that there are people who are listening to this who will want to take the Jumpstart program. But beyond that, I think a lot of people are curious how they can advocate for veganism or a plant-based lifestyle to their family, their colleagues, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond Veganuary. Not that I'm dissing Veganuary. I think it's amazing. But like, how do you keep people in it for the long run. We support them. 
<laughs> That's what we're really working on now because we have this growing group of people who are al- what we call alumni. And we have a monthly meeting and we have other programs like the, uh, well, it used to be called CHIP, the PIVIO program and the LIFT program. But we're really developing our alumni program because mm-hmm. people love that. We meet once a month and we're going to start to have more monthly meetings. We have a lot of people who want to volunteer. So we're going to, we're trying to think of ways to leverage them or use them to get even more people like on, involved on a continuing basis. But you're right, because I think, you know, I think one of the great things about being vegan is that time is on your side. I mean, when you first make the decision, your friends and your family give you a hard time and they really need to see that you stick with it. And they, and if they're decent people of goodwill, they're going to stop giving you a hard time at least. And then the next thing you know, they're asking you how to do it. So you got to stick with it long enough that that you can have that the power of your example can actually, you know, make an impact on them. It's not going to happen overnight. But, you know, like I say, most good people, they see you being vegan month after month. They start to accept it and even embrace it. Hmm. So, we, yeah. yeah, we do. That's our next frontier is to help people stay with it. Yes, it is a good thing to have people be vegan even for one meal. But persistence, longevity is, that's, that's the, the real challenge. But also in response to that, you know, the example that people see during the two weeks, and Carol's right, we do have some longer programs that go on for 12 weeks, like the CHIP program, but they know that during those two weeks, these amazing things happened. And they know that if they wander off the path, all they have to do is go back to where they were and they can get those amazing things to happen again. So yes, we do offer continuing support. We've had this alumni program for years now. Carol's calling it a frontier, but I mean, we've really been doing it for a long time, but we are definitely refining it now because that's always the complaint that you get from people in the healthcare system. Well, you can make them do that for now. What's going to happen in a year from now? And the response to that is, well, how many people stay on their medication for a whole year, right? So it's not like the medical system has this incredibly great track record for longevity for what their treatments are. And I'm speaking as somebody who actually makes my living in the healthcare system, right? I'm an interventional radiologist. I, I don't do as much interventional radiology now. The last few years, I've been mostly doing women's imaging. I do a lot of mammograms. I do a lot of breast biopsies and things like that. But I don't think for a minute that those are as helpful to people's overall health than what we're doing with Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute, which is really getting to the, the underlying causes of disease, including cancer, you know, actually, right? It's not just diabetes and heart disease and fatty liver disease and all these other metabolic syndrome things, but it's also cancer, believe it or not. And, and we know this from when you look at colon cancer and uh, the uh, reproductive cancers, they're all related to diet. So like, A, I agree with you, <laughs> obviously, but B, we also don't want to position veganism, and I'm saying veganism specifically, mm-hmm. we don't want to position it as like a cure-all or like, you know, there. what's that book, like vegans also die or vegans croak as well, whatever it's called. So speak to that. And, you know, I'm sure this isn't something that comes up a lot when you're doing interviews because you're usually doing interviews to like, you know, the general public and we're talking to a group of vegans. Mm-hmm. So how do you address that? How do you address the fact that like vegans, I've had many friends who are vegan get cancer and die. And I had one in particular who had leukemia and she was actually a raw foodist for like 30 years. She really struggled with feeling like she was letting people down and feeling like she wasn't a good advertisement for a plant-based lifestyle for raw foodism in particular. And I just was like, you might've gotten this sick and been dying like 20 years ago. Maybe your veganism kept you alive for an extra 
couple decades. So, like, can you speak to that, Dr. Ted Veggie Barnett? Sure. <laughs> so all you're ever really doing in life is changing the odds of things, right? You're Very rarely are you, is it a zero or a one? And then, of course, there's different levels of veganism. So you can be a junk food vegan, right? And we talk about this all the time in our programs. Uh, you can live on chips and soda, and then you're a vegan, right? You can have, live on Oreos, right? But I don't think anybody would argue that that's a healthy diet. And we certainly see people who have been vegan for a long time actually come through our programs and they say, wow, this has really changed me because I never was doing what you are suggesting, which is basically, which is oil-free, which is avoiding processed food. So there's different, you know, there's vegan and there's vegan. So if you could see my hands right now, there's a really big circle, mm -hmm. which is vegan, which is basically yeah. just no animal products. Our circle is much smaller. It's this little circle inside of a bigger circle. But since the big circle is infinite, the little circle is also infinite. It just doesn't look as big. But it's basically eating healthy vegans. So no processed food, no oil. And it makes a huge difference. It really does. I just want to jump in here and say that the book is Even Vegans Die. <laughs> you didn't like Patty, my you didn't like my version. Even, I like it. Even vegans croak. That's that's good too. And it's by Patty Brightman and Carol Adams and Jenny right. Messina. And I'm not sure which order the names come, but I might have gotten that wrong. Yeah. But um, no, I really like that because it gets to the heart of why we do what we do. You know, people talk about the why, and I think for us, the why is it does have to do with values. It doesn't have to do with quote unquote selfishness. Although I don't think it's selfish to want to be healthy. I mean, it may be in some sense. But the thing I love about being vegan is there are no bad reasons. And I love anybody who's vegan for any reason. That's why I love, I, you know, my heart is with running the Rochester Area Vegan Society because you get people who are there for veganism, whether it's for their health or whether for the animals or for the planet or for spirituality, for the environment. And there are only good reasons. And it, you just feel this immediate connection with somebody who's made that decision but, you know, one of the things that I think that we've done with Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute is we've gone with our strengths. I mean, I think people have to use what they have, right? Like you see celebrities endorsing veganism and you think that doesn't make them qualified to recommend it, but it's still the right thing to do. And so if it persuades somebody to at least try it, that's a good thing. So you use yeah. what you have. I mean, for, for decades, we run the Rochester Area Vegan Society and it's so close to our hearts. We love it. But like so many people, we want to take it to the next level. And so we used what we had, which was basically Dr. Veggie. <laughs> you know, Dr. Veggie, Ted has, he has medical credentials. And he gave us this great lever, I think, to get people to try it for health and medical reasons and to kind of have the interface between the values and the, because we, we do venture to introduce people to the ethical and, and the environmental benefits, you know, after they've tried it and they've seen the benefits in their own health. So we like to think we kind of bridge both worlds, but I, but I don't think we could do what we do if Ted, well, we couldn't if Ted didn't have his own angle, his own qualifying credentials. And it's the special thing that we can bring to the movement. I didn't know that you went there with the ethics and the environmentalism. That's like music to my ears. I'm so happy to hear that, that you go there. Yeah. Well, we've been doing that longer. We, we started running the Rochester Area Vegan Society in 1995. But I think Jasmine means with Rochester Lifestyle Medicine. Yeah, well, I definitely. Yeah, go ahead. Well, with Rochester Lifestyle Medicine, we have had some, um, I don't know, we've had some. Yeah, we call it the V word. Vegan is the V word, right? <laughs> We call it the V word. Well, you know, I'm sure you know James Levesque and Jenny Stein of Tribe of Heart. 
And one uh-huh. time at Summerfest, we heard them talk about their technique. I guess it's not like a technique technique. It's just their strategy in building a film is to build the viewer's trust. And so they lead you along in a narrative, in a story. Before they show you anything that's hard to watch, they, they get you to the point where you know that you're safe with them. That, that they will show you things that are hard to watch, but they'll be with you and they'll support you. They stage it carefully. And so I think that's what we do with the Jumpstart and with everything Rochester Lifestyle Medicine does. We present it at the end because we say to people, with what you know now about what your body can do and what a plant-based diet can do for your body, now you have a decision point. You know, are you going to keep this going? Are you going to make some adjustments to your plant-based diet? Are you, you know, maybe you're not going to be quite as, and I, I actually have something to say about that too, but because we have them on a pretty strict whole food plant-based diet and some people might like open it out and have a little more of certain kinds of foods that are still plant-based. But we also talk to them about, well, what are other reasons that, you know, you might want to stay on this path? And Ted and I have always felt that, <laughs> the ethical motivations for being vegan are almost what you would call medically indicated. If they're going to keep you on a plant-based diet and keep you healthy, then the doctor ought to be recommending that you care about animals and you care about the environment. Just because everything points in the same direction. You know, yes. what's good for us is good for the animals and good for the planet. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's, yes, it's medically indicated. Everything indicates that we ought to do it. I but but we wait a little bit. And we actually have a member of our team who used to say, Well, you shouldn't talk about those things because patients will not trust you if they think that you're not, that they are not front and center. They want to know that you have only their interests at heart. And, you know, it's been a while. It took a while to persuade her. But when those things line up so beautifully, it just makes sense to present the ethical and environmental reasons at the same time, or at least Mm -hmm. close to the same time. Yeah. If I could just say that again. So what Carol is saying basically is that Talking about the ethics for the, you know, as far as caring for the animals and caring for the planet, it is actually medically indicated because it helps people stay on the path, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, right? I want to go back to lifestyle medicine as a whole because I have been, I have seen Dr. Friedman. She has been my doctor. Um, I am curious for you to explain to our listeners what lifestyle medicine is because I explain it to people, but you're the pros and is it always vegan? Is lifestyle medicine always vegan? Okay. How about if I start with the last question first? Sounds good. We'll get that one out of the way. So there are six official pillars of lifestyle medicine put out by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We've added three of our own, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But the first one is plant-predominant diet. Okay. So that is not vegan. However, when we go to the conferences and actually have conversations with people, the actual diet that almost everybody recommends is vegan. Basically, we've pretty much all settled on the same whole food plant-based diet idea. It's very rare to hear anybody talk about something that's not actually whole food plant-based, which by definition is going to be vegan. However, that is not the official pillar. The official pillar is plant-predominant diet. And I've worked really hard to make sure that it has been vegan. When I joined ACLM back in 2010 at the insistence of Dr. Michael Greger, who we've known for a long time, since he was in medical school, actually, he asked me to join and we had 130 members then. We now have over 9,000 members. Wow. Uh, Okay. And it's growing exponentially. And so people get it. I'll tell you about the other pillars now, and then I'm going to tell you about why lifestyle medicine is so important. 
The six official pillars, and Carol's going to stop me if I get them wrong. The first one is a plant-predominant diet. The second one is physical activity, very important. The third one is avoiding toxins, so alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, all those things. Avoid those. The fourth one is social connection, cultivating good social connections and friendships and family. And actually, that may, for a lot of people, that is the most important one and the one that we're failing most at in our culture. Then another one is stress management. And, and then finally, there's sleep. Most people in this culture are not doing very well with sleep. You can probably acknowledge that yourself, right? Yeah. Just, right? There's so many reasons to not go to bed. Well, I was just going to say, one of the reasons that we, we have to focus on, on food and on diet in Rochester Lifestyle Medicine is that if you think about it, those other five pillars, the other five of the six, are not controversial. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody's right. going to say, you know, you shouldn't get sleep or that you need more stress. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, everybody agrees yeah. on this. They, they may sure. disagree on that. It, it's like it's simple but not easy. Or it's how do you get there? But 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 people agree on the goal. But mm-hmm. diet is all over the place. I mean, people mm-hmm. say the most crazy things, unbelievable mm-hmm. things. I mean, we had a, a, a lady tell us, well, a, a story about how she was a, a jumpstart grad who went to a convention and she had sat down to dinner with somebody who was on a carnivore diet. And the way, just the description was horrifying. And people delude themselves that these things are healthy. So there are different schools of thought in in the the area of diet that you just don't find with the other five pillars. So that's why we have to work so hard on it. Plus Mm -hmm. our heart is there and we know most about it. And there you are. Yeah, that's so true that the other Mm -hmm. ones aren't controversial. I want to say something on a personal note for a moment, uh, just because I feel like this might resonate with some of our listeners and and I have a memoir, so people can have access to my story anyway. And I, I know a lot of our listeners have read it, so this isn't really a surprise. But my background, like so many other women, it, it, it involved disordered eating. It involved like a really terrible relationship with food and with my body growing up. And, you know, that is something that I've worked through in my adulthood. But because of the trauma that I went through, especially as like a kid who was very, very bullied, I had I don't I don't want to have weight be a driving force in anything I do. I moved to Rochester, you know, in June 2021. And the first week I was here, I went to Rochester Lifestyle Medicine and I went in and I said, I don't want to be weighed. I don't want to talk about weight. And they were like, okay. Cool. What do you want? I was like, I want to feel better physically. I, f- I hurt all the time. You know, all, all of the things I, I am 43 now. So I was like in my early forties and those were my, those were my goals. And if, if I happen to lose weight as a result of what happens, then fine. And it worked. And I want to say that to our listeners, because I know that there's a lot that is a lot of tension out there uh, around the topic of weight. And I'm sure I'm offending people because you can't have this discussion without offending people. There was not even a second thought by my doctor. Fine. You don't want to talk about weight. We won't talk about weight. We don't have to weigh you. No problem. It never came up. And I was shamed by doctors, you know, like the medical institution Mm -hmm. as a whole has a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, problems within the way that a, a lot of doctors approach weight with their patients. And I think that that's something that lifestyle medicine can address, even though mm-hmm. it is so much built on these pillars that you're talking about, one of which for a lot of people will result in weight loss. It's almost to me a non-issue, 
Or you could do mm-hmm. all of this and succeed without ever having a conversation about weight. Mm-hmm. So that was my little rant. <laughs> weight weight loss is a, is a pleasant byproduct. It's not the it's not the it's like happiness, right? You don't go mm-hmm. straight to happiness. It's it's a byproduct of the things that you do, other things you do in your life. And weight loss is the same way. If you go at it head on, you're probably not going to succeed anyway. But that's not why you do what you're supposed to do, which is be healthy. And, right. and weight loss is peripheral or something. But I'm curious. It was such, it's so interesting, Jasmine. But was it harder for you when your story was out there? Did it make it a little harder for you that you had told the story? No. You know, just having a memoir in general is is a complicated thing. Because, you know, for people who pick it up, it's like a, a moment that's frozen in time. I started writing mm-hmm. it 10 years ago. My life was very different then. And people still read it, which I'm very, very grateful for. But they're reading like me a long time ago, and I, and it, it doesn't necessarily represent who I am now. And I was interviewed many times in many capacities, including like on the Dr. Oz show, like big, big platforms about pretty much weight loss. Mm-hmm. And then I gained a lot of weight when I was, you know, in in a really hard time in my life. And it's not like I, it's not like I'm in the public eye, but it, within my little world, I am. Mm-hmm. And that was difficult for me. How are you feeling now? I feel great. I love the way I eat. It's just like when I went vegan, which I, you know, nearly 20 years ago, it was like a world of abundance, not deprivation. And now it feels like there's nothing that I, I there's nothing I feel I can't have. There's nothing I feel like it, it, it all feels very balanced. And yeah. so, yeah, I feel, I'm like I said, I'm 43 and I know that I feel much more youthful than I did a few years ago just because of the lifestyle changes I've made. I do think lifestyle medicine was a big part of that. And it's mm-hmm. like I said, music to my ears to hear you talking about the ethics, because number one, you don't frequently find doctors who support veganism, although I would say more now than ever. And number two, when you do, ethics don't come up. Like Dr. Furman, for example, isn't totally vegan. It's complicated because he would never get into issues of ethics, never. And that is the driving force for a lot of us. So I love that you go there. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. That's really We sweet. do too. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jasmine, what you were talking about with your experience is all about acceptance. And I just want to say one of the most beautiful things for all of us is that during a jumpstart session, people are bathed with acceptance. It's really, it it isn't, it goes in every direction. So it's so wonderful to see that once we have an open discussion, the way that the jumpstart participants support each other. So they'll say things like, you know, somebody, you know, somebody's halting in their, what they say, or they, then somebody else will pick up and say, that was such a good, you know, contribution that so-and-so made. And I had the same experience. And you can feel the support going back and forth among the participants and people supporting us mm-hmm. and vice versa. And it's, that's the milieu or the medium in which health can grow and all good things. Mm-hmm. So that you, you just don't focus on something that's negative people. But then again, and it's almost, like a paradox, people are able to talk about the bad things that have happened to them. And if they want to share, they don't have to, but they can talk about, you know, bad health news that they got or health challenges and they feel trusted or they right. feel that they can trust or both. And it's really magical mm-hmm. when it, yeah. it's very healing for people. Yeah. And it's also healing for people to know that they don't, they can go at their own pace. 
they can they can en- enjoy all the benefits and not even just being there bearing witness is a participation and people will sometimes sometimes the people who we think are well skeptical and giving us a hard time and isn't this true of veganism anyway they're giving us the most hard time. They're the people who are on board and they want to give a testimonial, be at the next session, just like in, in, in life generally, where, the, the, you know, Ted always says, don't you, Ted, that the person who comes in and looks at your lunchbox and scrutinizes and teases, that the next thing you know, that person is asking for advice on how to become vegan. That makes a lot of sense. You just never know. And I mean, that is a good reminder also for people who advocate veganism, who are listening to this, that like, you might feel like you're not getting anywhere. And then the next thing you know, you get an email like, hey, that conversation we had three months ago, that really stuck with me. And since then, I maybe they don't go vegan. Maybe they go mostly vegan or something. You know, we'll take the wins that we can take, even though our whole goal is to like change the whole world. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about RAVS, Rochester Area Vegan Society, because I know you've been running it for a while. You didn't found it, though. Is that right? That's, That's right. It got started in 1989, and it okay. was founded by uh, the revolutionaries Stan and Rhoda Sapone. And they uh, came to us uh, in 1994, roughly, because they didn't think they could keep running it. And uh, so they turned it over to us. And uh, so I refer to them as the revolutionaries who started it, and we're the bureaucrats who've kept it going. Uh, and and it's awesome. and and honestly, it seemed like a really old organization when we took it over because it was six years old, right? But we've been running it now for almost thirty years, and uh, that's a lot of time. I mean, that was a very different world back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're it's an educational yes. organization. We tell people you don't have to be vegetarian or vegan to come to one of our meetings. You just have to eat like a vegan while you're there. Which is pretty, if you want to be here, we want you to. We yeah, want you here. Right. It's sort of yeah. a self selection. Right, because while the institute focuses exclusively on health issues, it appears that Ravs brings together people who care about all the issues. And Absolutely. is that right? It yes. is. It's really interesting. We get a lot of people come to Ravs who also are interested in health, right? Mm-hmm. So, but they're also obviously interested in the animals and the and the, and, we, and it tends to be a bit of a younger crowd. I take issue that because a lot of people who come to RLMI, the institute. They really care about the ethics. They really do. Mm-hmm. And maybe that isn't exactly why they showed up that day, but they're definitely behind it for that reason. Is it true that we scare some people off? Yeah, maybe, but who cares? Right. right? We're never going to appeal to everybody anyway. We might as well appeal to the people that we want to be around. Well, listen, I'm like, I get it. I'm like a atheist, vegan, lesbian. Mm-hmm. I understand what it means to scare people off and yeah. I don't really care. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and I don't mean to say we don't care, but we know that we're going to scare off somebody. Right. So, well, well, you know, Jasmine, another big part of our evolution was starting to go to Vegetarian Summerfest, mm-hmm. which we did for the first time in uh, 1995. Yeah, Nathaniel. Was- it was the same year that we took over, and we we've gone there every year since, uh, up until COVID interrupted that as well. Mm-hmm. And that was huge. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, isn't there a line? The line from the um, T. S. Eliot poem: "You measure out your life in coffee spoons." We measure out our life and jump starts. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, That's- really, our kids were babies when we first started going, and now they're adults, and we, we have trouble getting them to go with us, even they're, though they're all still vegan. And it, we met everyone, everyone at Vegetarian Summerfest. We know all the luminaries just because of our own persistence in being there, and and it, you just—it's it, like a big family. We learned so much there. 
And and Ted learned, I think Ted really gained the confidence. You know, he was always confident as a physician, but I think the confidence as a plant-based expert to jump in mm-hmm. with uh, Rochester Lifestyle Medicine. And, you know, another interesting thing that happened that we didn't talk about is that while we were the coordinators of the Rochester Area Vegan Society, but before we formed Rochester Lifestyle Medicine, well, we had this idea that we wanted to teach people about plant-based nutrition. So in 2012, we started teaching this two hours a week for six weeks. In person. Uh, plant-based, in-person <laughs> plant-based diet course. Mm-hmm. And Ted did the lectures and I did the course materials and the recipes and the food. And we gave that course 20 times. Wow. Until COVID hit. And then we haven't done it since then. But the course has gone online. I I, re- I figured out that every time we did that, we did one of those classes, it was like catering dinner for 25 people. We had about 50 wow. or sometimes 75 people. But I wow. took enough food to give samples at the beginning and in the middle. So I figured at the end of all that, I'd done it 120 times. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a lot of times. That's yeah. amazing. That's I know, amazing. I know, but it was fun, it was and really people fun. were people were so nice. Nine hundred people took that course. Wow! The way to a person's to their vegan heart is through their stomach. So, yeah. right, we gave them vegan, good mm-hmm. vegan food, and good vegan recipes, and Ted yeah. gave them an mm-hmm. inter- entertaining PowerPoint, which now can be viewed on. Yeah, you can take the course. <laughs> you can take the course on our website. Take the course. A plant-based diet, eating for happiness and health. Right, right. Ted, every time you give a talk, do you say that this is my TED talk? I should do that. Oh, why don't why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I don't know. I've been waiting like a half an hour to make that joke, just so you know. Yeah, thanks. Well, but one more thing about that course is that uh, when we first started giving it, we gave it as a civilian course. But within a couple of years, we had had it accredited by the you know, University of Rochester uh, for CME. So it was worth 12 CMEs because it was 12 hours. So Continuing medical continuing, education yeah. credit. Right. So over 100. That's so great. Yeah, over 100 people in the Rochester area have taken that course for credit. For so credit. Cool. I think it's like 150 actually have taken it for credit. So I mentioned earlier, and then I kind of, you know, just kept talking, but I want to go back to this. I mentioned earlier that it is still a little unusual to have doctors endorse veganism. Mm-hmm. I mean, am I right? Or has that changed? Oh, you're absolutely right. But it's changed enough. So there are enough of us now out there so we can have conversations with each other. And uh, so we actually started something I'm really proud of. It's called Lifestyle Medicine Grand Rounds. And it meets once a month. And, you know, it's something we never would have thought of before the pandemic. But now you can do things on Zoom, right? So it's worldwide. And what we do is we have somebody present a case, an interesting and or challenging case of an actual patient to an expert panel. And the expert panel consists of two regulars who are usually these two doctors from Michigan that we have a partnership with. And then we bring in a guest panelist who's usually somebody who's kind of famous. So we've had Neil Barnard be the guest panelist twice. Michael Greger's been the guest panelist. Uh, John McDougall's been the guest panelist. Carol, who else? Well, George Guthrie, who's a former president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Milton Mills Michael is going to... Michael Clapper, gonna, did you say? Oh, Michael Clapper, of course. He was the first one, right? Michael Clapper. Milton Mills is going to be our guest panelist next month. Or actually, it's this month because it's March already. Dr. Greger, did yeah. you say? And Dr. Greger, yeah. So, um, so that's doctors talking to each other about how to use plant-based diet to actually help uh, patients. And mm. we've kind of gone... We, it, to me, it's the next level because I go to these, I've been going to plant-based conferences now since, I don't know, 2014, when, they, when the Plantrition Conference w- first started. 
And then um, American College of Lifestyle Medicine started. And then Neil Barner does his thing with the PCRM. It's the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. That's every year. And then also PPOD meets at least once or twice a year. Um, those are the four big plant-based nutrition conferences. You know, in the last couple of years, I've kind of joked with Carol when I'm out the door to go catch my plane to wherever it is. Like, hey, what do you think they're going to say? That plants are good for you? So, <laughs> I mean, how many, how many times are we going to have to say that, right? But... The, what we've done now is we've moved it into the real world, which is that, okay, you have a real patient here. They live in a real family, right? Their spouse is not supportive. They work at a job where they can't get healthy food. Right? All these things, right? How do you deal with that? And I'm amazed. These expert panelists, they without, a, you know, without dropping a beat, they have great ideas. And so we've actually made progress in terms of managing actual patients uh, based on the conversations that the presenter will have. Now, the challenge is getting the presenters, but we, so far, knock on wood, we've been able to get people to present as well. This last month, we had a, a second-year family medicine resident from Rhode Island presented a case to Dr. Will Bolshewitz. You know him, right? Mm. Yeah, the, the fiber uh, I know the name. Yeah. I don't know I mm -hmm. don't know who, what, like, any more than the name, but now I'm yeah. writing it down because yeah. I want to look him up. Yeah, so he's... That he's is awesome. I wonder if there are some vegan doctors who don't talk about it as much. Yeah. Like yeah. That they're vegan... Mm. motivations I'm, I'm i'm not sure I, I guess probably we we would probably know because we would know what they say in public and what we know of them in some cases but mm. i don't know i think it's becoming more seamless you know people are kind of owning up or seeing it as one of the tools like ted was saying earlier that it's medically indicated to share with people the other reasons to do it so it just becomes mm -hmm. another tool in the toolbox you know was it they say abraham lincoln said animal rights are like human rights it's the way of a civilized human being or something like that. I mean, it's all part of the value system of a human being yeah. and shouldn't be so compartmentalized. I have two personal questions sure. for now. I might ask you more during the bonus segment, which we will get to shortly. Did I hear you correctly, Carol? Did you say that Dr. Veggie is a musician? Yes, I didn't tell say me, that. Tell me more, Carol. <laughs> See my piano back there? I, shouldn't, he speak, shouldn't he speak for himself? He, he should, but I want to hear it from you. I want to hear what you what you think about uh, Dr. Veggie's music. And then, yes, of course, well, Ted, I want to hear Well, he's a great saxophonist, and he's a good piano player. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a very a very average piano player, but I'm a, I'm a decent sax player. Okay. He sings pretty well. Doesn't mean Gilbert and Sullivan. I think the I think his greatest, oh, I don't, this this might be shortchanging him. Well, he, he loves playing oh. the saxophone. Well, he loves playing the uh, recorder and flute and piano. But I think his greatest contribution is, is to have steered us towards being a family for whom music was so important. Aww. It was just a foregone conclusion that our kids would take piano. Mm -hmm. And then they added on strings and voice, and they all are musical and all the, and, and theater, and they're music, they're, they perform and love all those areas now. So wow. I, I'm not sure we would have done that if it had just been me, but that would have been a different world. So, Anything to add, Ted, about your musical inclination? Sure. So Carol's a very good singer, actually. Uh, and I'm an average piano player. Uh, I'm a, pretty, a reasonably good saxophone player. My best instrument is actually sitting on the piano behind me. It's that wooden, uh, it's a tenor recorder. Oh. Um, yeah. Wow. But as a result of having taught our kids music from an early age, we actually have a Grammy. What? <laughs> Nathaniel, our son, our youngest, Nathan Nate Barnett, Nathaniel, is uh, part of a professional choir in Philadelphia called The Crossing. Huh. They've gotten three Grammys over the years, and their last album got the Grammy this year. 
for best performance. And he was wow. part of the choir at that time. Yeah. So we, in fact, we just saw him last night at Ithaca College. So he doesn't have a whole Grammy. He has one twenty-fourth of a Grammy because that's fun. <laughs> uh, (laughs) I'll take like one one billionth of a Grammy. That's so cool. So do you know Dr. Bernard is also quite the musician? Like you two should jam together at Summerfest. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I would go see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's quite a bit of music at Summerfest. There's great music. Our kids kids have been sort of leaders in the music there. So that's. I was just about to ask you about them. So are they vegan since birth? Nathaniel is vegan since before birth. But, yeah, okay. he actually, we, we kind of made the transition when our oldest was a toddler. So we like to say they've been vegan. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. They're lifelong been vegan. Their whole lives. But if you want to get strictly speaking about it. Because they, they were, they nursed a long time. So they were getting most of their calories from. Yeah, really. from uh, I'm also a big fan of breastfeeding. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. And so how, uh, how, how old are they? They are. 30. 35, 33, and 30. Okay. Wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah, we made the transition in 1991. January 1st, 1991 wow. is the official date. Yeah, they're vegangelists. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> Very well. I, I need to close up this interview because I feel like I will just keep talking to you forever, which I might. But I do want you to stay on for the bonus sure. segment if you don't mind. But before we go, just let's end on this question that I like to ask people sometimes. I'd love both of your answers. You know, there's a lot going on in the world. You are not at all uh, unaware of the horrors that are on the news every day, the catastrophe that's going on with the climate, and just the absolute horror show that is happening to animals behind closed doors. What gives you hope? Well, I think what gives me hope is that theoretically, if everyone became vegan overnight, all the world's problems would be solved. And actually, it's not impossible because there's there's no lead time that's needed. There's no big investment. There's no permission. There's no legislation. People just need to decide to do it. And you might say, well, what's going to ha- happen to make people wake up and become vegan? And the thing is that it's not it's not impossible. I mean, we live in a world of of instant communication in, in this global village where where people have this information at their disposal and at their fingertips literally at their fingertips and, you know, their eyeballs. And, and so even though, it, you know, we're all impatient for it to happen now, yesterday, it's possible. I mean, it seems like there's this quantum leap that's waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess what gives me hope is that I know that what we're working on is the most important thing because it includes everything. It solves everything. And that may seem grandiose, but it's not. It's just true. A vegan world where we have reverence for all life that's the solution to everything. And it, it's not impossible. Not Theoretically, it's possible. And, and everything we do in reality to bring it closer is the best way we can possibly spend our time. Oh, my God. I'm just going to play that on a loop. That was so beautiful. So well said. Ted, how do you, how do you follow that? <laughs> sure. Well, let me just elaborate a little bit on what you just said, and then I'll give you my own view, which is that Carol's right. You know, there's so many of these other sort of solutions that people try to work toward that require a long lead time, like everybody driving an electric car, for example. It just can't happen overnight, right? Or everybody switching to renewable energy. It can't happen overnight. But it is true that people could change the way they eat basically overnight. Now, if everyone did it all at once, we'd obviously run out of certain food and it would take farmers, you know, it would take a little bit of time to catch up, but actually not that much because we're growing all this food to feed the farm animals. Humans can eat you know, an awful lot of that food. 
So it wouldn't take, it wouldn't be that hard. So Carol, you know, I think she's absolutely right. I think it, it really does give us hope. And it, you know, it really, it's why I get up in the morning, right? It's because I know I'm going to be able to, uh, to help people move in that direction. But I'd like to quote my favorite farmer poet. You know, are you familiar with Wendell Berry? No. Ah, Wendell Berry. So he's got a lot of great quotes. One of my favorites is, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Mm. Right? Mm. Okay. So if you look that one up, that's uh, whether it's from The Mad Farmer. I forget what it's from, Carol, one of his long poems. But he also has some other really great quotes, like, people are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health, and treated by the health industry, which pays no attention to food. Mm -hmm. Right? So, yeah. You know, a lot of some great quotes there. But, you know, we're working on some other things, which I'll reveal to you over the next few months, perhaps. Please do. Yeah. I'm very, I, I want to know everything. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely come to you. We have some really great ideas. And actually, we're working on a, a whole new website. Yeah. Exciting. I'd be happy to share with you in the, uh, in the yes, in your future. Yes, please do. Yeah. I would love that. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add about the hope? Why am I hopeful? Well, I'm hopeful partly because of that quote from Wendell Perry, which is be joyful. Though. Yeah. I mean, I get up every morning and I go outdoors uh, as much as I can and go for a run. I'm a big birder. You know, the, the seasons seem to keep happening, even though they are changing in ways that are a bit discouraging. But, you know, the birds keep coming back. They're singing. They're starting to sing now, you know, and uh, I think things are starting to come together in a, in a lot of ways. It's how it's going to happen. Nobody can really predict. But I think we as a species are continuing to evolve in a, in a better direction. But we've got a few bumps in the road ahead of us. We just have to be prepared for that. Yeah. Well, I, I feel a lot better about the bumps in the road, knowing that you two are out there <laughs> changing the world. Yeah. And so it, before you go, can you please tell our listeners how they can follow you online and support your efforts? Absolutely. So please visit rochesterlifestylemedicine.org. Just Google Rochester Lifestyle Medicine Institute. You'll find us. We have a Facebook page. We are on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, and we're on Instagram. I'd love it if people would go to our Instagram uh, page. We have a, a new technology director who, in addition to helping us run our technology, is also helping with our social media and getting interesting stuff out there. So that's really helpful. Cool. And any way that people can share the, wor the word uh, is really yeah. helpful. Because if you have, if the people listening to this podcast are mostly vegan and kind of already on board, mm -hmm. what we really need to do is reach a lot more people. Our 15-day whole food plant-based jumpstart has been designed to be incredibly scalable. And we can scale up very quickly, not overnight, but right now we're seeing maybe about 50 or 60 people a month. We could easily be seeing 300 a month awesome. very quickly. And once you hit 300 a month, then we can move to thousands a month. Because, right, we got lots of people out there, like in this audience, who are willing to help because, you know, yes, we're, definitely. Right, right, who can yeah. help us be facilitators for our programs and it's, you know, some training involved, but we would love to have people help us out. Did you give contact info for the Rochester Area Vegan Society? I did not. It's rochesterveg.org mm -hmm. and also rochesterveg at Gmail. It isn't really just a local organization. I was going to tell you that one of the things that happened with COVID is before COVID, we were trying to have, you know, eight or 10 great programs a year. And we would balanced, you know, some of them health programs, some ethics, some environment, you know, the whole gamut. And because we knew so many people, we would try to bring in people from out of town, you know, leading lights of the plant-based movement, we really knocked ourselves out trying to do that because we, we could and we wanted to do that for our members. Well, then COVID hit and everything went on Zoom. And so then it happened that Rochester Lifestyle Medicine was bringing all these great health programs 
as Zoom webinars, and mm-hmm. the Vegan Society was able to partake of that. You know, they could just join the Zoom meetings. But I think it's going to go in both directions. And when you said, well, how do you keep people going? How do you support people? I think now that we're in that stage where we have so many people have taken Jumpstart, but they want to stick with it and they want to they know more about the other reasons to be vegan, they can join the programs of the Rochester Area Vegan Society. Because now that Rochester Lifestyle Medicine kind of has the health part kind of covered, The Rochester Area Vegan Society, when we do have our programs and we carry them on Zoom, they're more likely to be on ethical aspects. In fact, coming up, we have the executive director of the Farm Animal Rights Movement coming to talk to us, and we have Serena Farb, who's on her vegan van tour coming in May, Mm -hmm. and she's got like six speaking engagements in the Rochester area, but we'll be Zoom broadcasting her talk to us. So we hope to make it so that people can join the Rochester Area Vegan Society's programs from afar as well. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wonderful. And we will link to all of this in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much for the incredible work you're doing and for spending all of this time with me tonight. It was very illuminating and I can't wait for all of our listeners to listen to this as well. So thank you for giving us a chance to know you a little bit better. It's been so much fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, You're actually a nice person. We had a good time. Ah, I have my moments. <laughs> Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety surprising. We have some doozies this week. It's getting out of control. Things are really getting crazy out there. You've probably heard a bit about some of these stories, or at least two of them have really hit the news in a big way. One of them is, this is an article from The Guardian, which is really the outfit that that broke this story. The title of the story is Inside Big Beef's Climate Messaging Machine, Confuse, Defend, and Downplay. And the beef industry has really just pulled out all the stops. They are on a public relations, as, as this article calls it, war. This is an article by Joe Fassler, who I might add mentions in here that he doesn't think that beef is completely unsustainable. So he's not even totally like, like he he could hardly be called a zealot. Uh, I guess I could be called a zealot because I think beef is totally unsustainable. But but he's not even on, on, on that road. He just thinks that what they're doing is insane. The U.S. beef industry, he starts out, is creating an army of influencers and citizen activists to help amplify a message that will be key to its future success, that you shouldn't be too worried about the growing attention around the environmental impacts of its production. Yeah, this is, yeah, I mean, this is all about climate. And they especially want to pay attention to how concerned people might get and how they don't want that to happen about avoiding violently disruptive forms of planetary heating. And 
That includes, even if we got rid of all of the fossil fuels, that meat would still be a problem. He doesn't want you to pay attention to that. Like, apparently these people think that you can just raise cows on a planet that is dying and still sell the meat and we'll all be fine. I I don't know what they're thinking. I really don't. The world's too crazy for me. Uh, So he he took this course. There are 21,000 graduates, 21,000, count them. It's free. Uh, You have to get admitted. So don't think you can just go take it. Uh, And if you have any social media presence, you probably won't be allowed. And it's an online training course. And it's created uh, by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And it's called the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program, uh, or MBA for short. Cute, right? And according to Joe, what you get is multiple misleading but scientific sounding narratives. And there are also repeated appeals for students to engage proactively. There are lots of uh, lovely infographics and industry talking points. So they're just training. I, I don't know what these people are getting out of it, but there's apparently a lot of them and they feel they're getting something out of it. And they are training them to like just talk up the beef industry and talk down any criticism of it, particularly based on on climate. Uh, they also do talk about the role of beef in a healthy diet. Yes. Uh, But, you know, it's a lot about sustainability. It's funded by the Beef Checkoff Program, which is, you know, a sort of quasi-governmental program, these checkoff programs. They're the ones who paid for the big advertising campaigns like the few years ago, Beef, It's What for Dinner. And, you know, all of the commodities have them. And the money does come from the industry, but the programs are administered by, yes, your, your federal government. The federal government is participating in in like completely and totally deceptive messaging about the role of the beef industry in climate. The beef industry is engaged, he says, in an all-out public relations war to preempt environmental criticisms of its products, and those PR efforts are increasing. That's for sure. What they're trying to convince us of is that it is completely belied by the science that dietary change has no role, not like not less a role, but no role in, in climate strategy. And this article goes into great detail about why beef is such, and you know, I mean, even in the context of animal-based foods, beef is a serious, serious outlier. You could eat lamb all day. And if you have no conscience, uh, you know, well, you would still be really bad on climate, but not even close to as bad as if you were eating meat. And, you know, it all starts, he goes into a lot of the history. You probably remember in 2006, there was that big report from the UN, Livestock's Long Shadow. And there was a big, big pushback from the industry. According to him, they were terrified uh, because, you know, as is always the case, they know the truth. We know the truth. Everybody in the middle, they don't know the truth. And uh, there's a quote in here from Jennifer Jaquette, who's, of course, been on the on the podcast. She's at NYU. I think I heard that she... She might be, well, I don't don't know. She might be moving. Since at least 2006, the industry has been borrowing tactics from the fossil fuel playbook. While meat and dairy producers have not claimed that climate change is a liberal hoax, as oil and gas producers did starting in the 1990s, companies have been downplaying the industry's environmental footprint and undermining climate policy. So a little bit of a different tack. They were probably too late on the scene to claim that, you know, it wasn't happening at all the way the oil and gas industry did. So they're just just arguing, yeah, it's happening, but it has nothing to do with us. And of course, they go, he goes into a lot of detail about my favorite, Frank Mitloiner, who's a UC Davis animal scientist who's just completely in, in the pocket of the industry on this issue and has advised people that 
consuming less meat and milk has nothing to do with greenhouse gases and blah, 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 all this stuff. It really goes into a lot of detail. And about all of the remarks he made, they point out that nothing he said actually proved the assertions that dietary change wasn't, you know, like he would make this assertion and then bring out all this science and the science didn't have anything to do with the assertion that dietary change didn't matter. You know, that's a time-honored trick. Nobody reads articles carefully and it's hard to read, read science articles. You know, there was this big to-do about whether the UN had had overstated livestock's emissions. I still don't think they did, but, you know, they did manage to convince the world that that was true. But the real problem was that they probably underestimated, if that if that was true, and even accepting their numbers, they underestimated the impact of transport. They're just, like, it doesn't, if the number of total greenhouse gases is so enormous, like, percentage maybe isn't the way to look at it. The way to look at it is, it, are you emitting any? And if you are, is it enough to destroy the world? And the answer to that is yes. Oh, and they, you know, of course, they also left out information about his funding. So he opened this program, the Clarity and Leadership for Environmental Awareness and Research Center. That stands for, you can tell already that there's an acronym there. It's CLEAR Center. And Mitt Loiner runs it. And, and it exists to do research, to do research and then to publish and promote the research that promotes the efficiency of animal agriculture, ostensibly to increase the efficiency of animal agriculture. There's all this stuff about the funding. I know I'm going on too long. I know I am. I know I am. But there's just so much information here. You really should read the article. Here's really the money quote. They put it at the end, but but I'll just read it to you. This is the centerpiece of this Masters of Beef advocacy course that they're giving to people all over the country using checkoff money. And as I said, that's not exactly government money, but it's government administered money. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association has developed what it has called a digital command center a sophisticated online monitoring system that tracks media outlets and social media for more than 200 beef-related topics, hosted in Denver in a space that, quote, looks like a military operations center combined with a TV section at an electronics retailer. I did see a picture of it, and that's a pretty good description. That's according to a recent Cattlemen's Beef Board mailer sent to ranchers, so they're bragging about how fancy pants it looks. The command center alerts members of NCBA's issues management and media relations team whenever stories or online chatter rise above a certain threshold. All right, here it is. It's staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with personnel redundancies built in to make sure someone's always watching. They're really scared, but you know what? They scare me. They really do. All right, I, like I said, I can't keep talking about this article. It's very long. It's very detailed. It's very good. It really should be read. So the other thing that they came out like in the past week is this Dublin Declaration. And this is a totally different topic. Uh, this is on health. Hundreds of scientists slam plant-based diet zealots, encourage meat, red meat consumption. This is from the Daily Caller. This is, has to do with this document put out by a thousand scientists from around the globe, which they say encourages the consumption of meat slamming movements to push plant-based diets as, quote, zealotry. You know, it is a bad report, but that's a little bit of an exaggeration from what I can tell when they actually get into the details. As has been pointed out by um, sentient media and other outlets, there's a lot of industry bias here, but I'm not even sure that industry bias is necessary. Let's face it. Like, there aren't that many people. A lot of people believe this. A lot of scientists believe this. Like, you know, you could go to a dietitian today and they'd probably tell you you had to eat meat. 
there's industry bias, but that's that's not all that's going on here. What's also going on is some some deceptive descriptions of what has really been signed on to by uh, by these quote unquote scientists. According to the Dublin Declaration, livestock-derived foods provide a variety of essential nutrients and other health-promoting compounds, many of which are lacking in diets globally, even among those populations with higher incomes. All right, so what they're saying there is that there are some people who have diets who are lacking in the nutrients. There are nutrients in meat. They're also accompanied by a lot of bad things, but there are nutrients. And yeah, people have incredibly deficient diets all over the globe. It also goes on to say well-resourced individuals may be able to achieve adequate diets while heavily restricting meat, dairy, and eggs. So they actually admit that vegan diets, well, I think that's what they mean by heavily restricting. Vegan diets can be healthy. However, they go on to say this approach should not be recommended for general populations. Like, so what's going on here? They're not saying that vegan diets aren't possible. They're just saying that if people... Basically, what they're saying, as far as I can read, if most people around the the world suddenly removed the meat, dairy, and eggs from their diet, their diets would be deficient. And, you know, that's probably true. Probably they're not eating vegetables. They're not eating whole grains. They're not eating legumes. They wouldn't be eating a healthy vegan diet. They'd probably be eating a lot of crap. They wouldn't be getting any B12. They're not saying that vegan diets couldn't be healthy. They're just saying that people shouldn't suddenly... Everybody on the planet should not suddenly stop eating meat. Unless, of course, they don't say this part, they drastically changed what vegetable foods they were eating. It's really not exactly false. It's more just wildly, wildly deceptive. Researchers, the article goes on, behind the Dublin Declaration, refuted the argument that that, uh, people should turn to plant-based diets, which was from a Harvard study saying, quote, farmed and herded animals are irreplaceable, unquote, in keeping up a, quote, circular flow of materials in agriculture. Now, that's just nonsensical. Livestock are not only able to convert large amounts of inedible biomass back into the natural cycle. They're talking about grazers. It's just crazy. Like, the vast majority of animals in the world are not grazed. They're factory farmed. They do it while simultaneously producing high-quality food fit for consumption, according to the article. Well, you know... What your idea of fit for consumption is probably different than my idea of what's fit for consumption. But we're seeing, I mean, there's kind of a combination of deceptive and trotting out some some really worn out and false arguments here. But, you know, there's nothing more successful than telling people what they want to hear. All right. Finally, from meetingplace.com, could the meat industry be the subject of the next presidential edict? All right, this is by Matt Graves, who I've mentioned before. Right, He writes this Meet Your Markets column, and I would say his anxieties are rising more than the average bear's. It's Sometimes it's hard to tell. Interesting guy. It's hard to tell whether he's anxious about what's going to happen to the industry, like they all are, or whether he's anxious about whether what the industry is doing is really a good idea. All right, so he starts out by talking about how the president issued a decree that that electric vehicles have to comprise at least 30% of all vehicle sales by 2032. And he's comparing that to the meat industry and he's saying that that beef producers in in particular should uh should be nervous about this. My concern is that we will witness a similar presidential restrictive edict to reduce beef industry greenhouse gas methane emissions. He's particularly, he knows about methane. He knows it's really bad. He knows it's really destroying the climate. He knows it's really produced by beef. 
I think the, the way he puts things, he's he actually is really, really nervous about this in a real sense about what's going to happen to the planet. But he knows he has to couch it to his audience in in words that indicate that he's really worried just about, you know, survival of the beef industry. They seem to stop there. They don't, as I said before, they don't seem to realize that the beef industry has to exist on a planet that is functioning. So he's saying that, you know, that car manufacturers have been proactive. They've jumped in. They're starting to produce electric vehicles. And being proactive, he says, is something we in the meat industry should replicate. He does say climate change is real, which is kind of a radical thing to say within the meat industry still. Then he asks, what can the meat industry do about its own atmospheric warming GHG emissions? And he doesn't really have an answer. <laughs> he does talk about methane, how it's twice as bad for the environment short term. Overall, like the industry may have less of an effect because methane disappears faster, but a greater immediate one. Well, you know, we don't have a lot of time. Like we can't like go through a phase of destroying the planet and then get the planet back. So we have to worry about immediate change. Instead of a full-throated total meat industry effort to curb methane emissions, he points out, we have seen only intermittent attempts at developing alternative feeds and feeding regimens. This must change or we may become vulnerable to a presidential edict again. Like, you really think that the presidential edict is the real problem here and not like the destruction of the planet? I don't know. I don't know about these people. And then, you know, he goes on and on about this. We need science-based results, blah, 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 develop an industry-wide effort curbing methane emissions, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't have any way to do it. And neither do the rest of them. That's why they're like, got their heads in the sand. Oh, my anxieties are rising too. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one session with me, Jasmine. And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 